Let's get it. Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a good week outside of podcast land. I went to my first Marine Corps birthday ball since I was handed that DD-214. You know, it was great seeing the video, the cake, the reading of General Lejeune's message, and all the pop and circumstance of the ball. And But more importantly, I got a chance to see the next generation of Marines carry on the tradition, which, which was a good feeling because I definitely felt like the old man of the Marine Corps while I was there. Uh, a couple ratings, but no reviews this week. Remember, the more you rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, sometimes even unsubscribing and resubscribing, the better chance other veterans out in podcast land get a chance to listen in and hear not only these great stories, but the benefits breakdown episodes and the information provided in the news releases. Speaking of news releases, got a couple this week. And if you live near a base... There is one in here that I think you will be really interested in. All right. First one up says, for immediate release, VA's Veterans Benefits Administration makes strides during 2019 fourth quarter. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Veterans Benefits Administration delivered performance improvements made for the fourth quarter of fiscal year 2019 during a late October live webcast. The presentation included an update in processing veteran claims and an overview of the Benefit Administration's eight programs, disability compensation, appeals, pension and fiduciary, insurance, education, voc rehab and employment, home loan guarantee, and transition and economic development. Our Secretary Robert Wilkie said the program serves 4.9 million veterans and family members and provided $29 billion in benefits in the last four months of fiscal year 2019. Some things that they talked about in the webcast, uh, compensation completed claims 29 days sooner than its goal of 125 days. Veteran pension claims completed an average of 103 days ahead of the 125 day mark. Survivor benefits on average completed 91 days better than the projected 125 days. And on average, insurance claims were completed in 3.3 days less than the four-day target. Fiduciary performed more than 27,000 field examinations beyond the target of 21,000. Education processed original applications in 23 days, faster than the 28-day target. Voc Recap and employment met as promised to hire 169 counselors. Home loan guarantee provided all funding fee refunds by September 30th. And transition and education development surpassed its 95% customer satisfaction goal. In addition, the remaining provisions of the Colmary Act, which will be implemented by December 1st, provide changes to education programs, including aligning the monthly housing allowance to a student's campus location. Also confirmed are awards for Blue Water Navy claims set to begin January 1, 2020. To watch the entire webcast, you can find it at benefits.va.gov forward slash stakeholder. All one word. All right, this next one is the important one if you live near a base. It says, for immediate release, Department of Defense expanding access to commissaries, military exchanges, and recreation facilities. 
The Department of Defense is expanding commissary, military exchange, and morale, welfare, and recreation retail privileges on U.S. military installations as specified in the Purple Heart and Disabled Veterans Equal Access Act of 2018, included in the John McCain National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019. What does that all mean? It means this. Starting January 1, 2020, access will expand to include all veterans with service-connected disabilities, veterans who are Purple Heart recipients, veterans who are former prisoners of war, and individuals approved and designated as the primary family caregivers of eligible veterans under the Department of Veterans Affairs Program of Comprehensive Assistance for Family Caregivers. While this expansion will extend eligibility to over 4.1 million new patrons, the department expects little to no impact on current patrons in most locations. There may be some impact in areas with a high cost of living, but the department is preparing to accommodate all new patrons. New patrons eligible solely under this authority should be aware that the law requires the Defense Department to charge them a small user fee to offset the increased expense incurred by the Department of Treasury for processing commercial credit or debit cards used for, pur used for purchases at commissary stores. The Department of Defense is finalizing the details for these new privileges with the Department of Veterans Affairs, Homeland Security, and Treasury. Information will be announced soon regarding installation access and the authentication process for these privileges. To learn more about the commissary, military exchange, and MWR expansion, uh, we have a fact sheet that I will uh, put in the description on the blog for this episode at blogs.va.gov. All right, the next one says, for immediate release, VA use innovative means to help reduce diabetic limb loss. November is National Diabetes Month, and as part of the broader efforts by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs to confront diabetes, on December 1st, VA will begin regional implementation of the Podiometrics MAT, a new medical device that has the potential to prevent limb loss in veterans with diabetes. The technology now in use at 15 VA medical centers uses thermographic monitoring of a patient's feet to identify early onset of diabetic foot ulcers, which can lead to limb loss if not detected early. Known as thermal imaging, the non-invasive test involves no radiation and uses a special camera to measure skin temperature. This allows clinicians to develop plans for preventing added deterioration of a patient's health. VA's use of, of the Podomics mat builds on a 2017 VA-led study at the Phoenix VA and VA Greater Los Angeles Healthcare Systems. The study showed the in-home foot temperature monitoring device was able to detect 97%, 97% of DFUs as early as five weeks before the onset of symptoms, with 86% of participants using the mat on an average of three days per week. With more medical centers offering the use of the mat, VA has continued to observe similar outcomes. One VA facility found 84% of veterans are using the mat almost daily, allowing preventative clinical interventions to take place. The mat will be available to all veterans across the country, across the country through their local prevention of amputations for veterans everywhere clinic providers. That is a long that one needs an acronym. In addition, VA's Veteran Health Administration Innovation Ecosystem is implementing a pilot program of the MATS at VA facilities in the Southeast where some of the highest DFU rates exist. Through the effort, VA will be able to further evaluate best practices and optimize, and optimize care models 
ultimately improving the effectiveness of the technology in the VA healthcare system. Last year, VA treated more than 75,000 DFU cases across the country. All right, and the next one says, for immediate release, VA announces limits on taxpayer-funded union time and tells unions to pay their fair share for office space and equipment. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced today that unions will be required to vacate or pay rent for the use of VA office space and equipment that was previously used for free. Further, VA employees who serve as union representatives are now expected to spend at least 75% of their paid time performing VA business or necessary training in most circumstances. The changes are part of VA's implementation of three executive orders from earlier this year. The executive orders generally end the practice of offering free or discounted use of government property to labor organizations. VA will provide union leaders with rental costs for all union-occupied spaces by December 13th, and unions have until January 10, 2020, to notify VA of their intent to either vacate or rent each VA space currently occupied. If there is no notice of intent to rent received, VA will consider the lack of notice and intent to vacate. The executive orders also increase to limit taxpayer-funded union time, redirecting man hours from the union business back to direct services and medical care. In fiscal year 2016, VA employees spent more than a million duty hours on taxpayer-funded union time at a cost of more than $49 million. And finally, for immediate release, VA renews partnership with YUSA to expand whole health services to veteran communities. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently renewed a nationwide partnership with YUSA that focuses on whole health that focuses on whole health to enhance services available that promote health and well-being of veterans, their families, and caregivers. In the next phase of the partnership, renewed October 1st, VA and YMCA of the USA, the national entity that oversees YMCA facilities across the country, will share ideas and success stories to expand the program at the local level. VA, vet centers, and local YMCAs are working together to increase awareness about YMCA programs, including community events, whole health groups, veteran benefits and service clinics, and youth activities by creating a toolkit of best practices and resources for local YMCAs. The partners will also develop a pilot collaboration program between local YMCAs and mobile vet centers and community-based counseling centers that provide a wide range of social and mental health services. VA will support and encourage its local and national offices and medical facilities to enter in agreements with YMCAs to provide programming and services targeted, targeting the veteran population. All right, so the interview this week was one of the very first interviews that I conducted. And I held on to it for a couple of reasons. It was a long interview, and I knew it was going to take a while to cut down. Two, I wanted to wait until we built up more of an audience because I wanted more people to hear this story. And three, as we got closer to Native American Heritage Month, I felt like this guest would be a great representative. I call him a bit of a Lakota Renaissance man. In his civilian life, he was an assistant basketball coach for Moorhead State, he had been in numerous films and television series, has had two radio shows, and holds a dual PhD. He is Army, Vietnam veteran, and Lakota warrior, Robert Primo. Enjoy.
you come from a very storied uh, family from the Hunk Papa, uh, mm-hmm. Lakota. Yes. Uh, can you can you let a lot of listeners know uh, some of your family history? My great great grandfather, Louis Primo, was Sitting Bull's interpreter, and he was also the interpreter for the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. And one of his allies was Buffalo Bill Cody. They were good friends. And um, my, uncle, Herbert, my uncle, Herbert Buffalo Boy, was the most decorated American Indian soldier in World War II. So he parachuted in all five major campaigns, correct? Correct. Uh, Europe, uh, Salerno, Sicily, uh, France, and, and Market Garden. Correct. Uh, I guess it's, it's not... It's probably easy to venture to say that uh, serving the United States uh, in in a time of war was kind of in your blood. You could say that, even though I didn't even know it when I joined the military at seventeen. Oh, really? Yes. You didn't. You didn't know any of this at the no. time. No. When did the, when were you learn? When did you learn all of this? I would say in the I would say in the nineteen nineties. Oh wow. We, okay, we'll get to the 90s in a, in a, in a little okay. bit. Uh, yeah. I, want, <laughs> I wanted to get to Vietnam first. You served with the uh, 101st in Vietnam. Why did you decide to join the service in the first place? I just I just wanted to get off the reservation and, and uh, see something else because I just wanted to, well, get off the reservation. But it. Got you. Uh, and you went through boot camp at Fort Lewis. I didn't know that. I've seen some documentaries that because I'm from Washington State myself. Okay. I, so, but growing up, I never knew there was a boot camp at Fort Lewis. What was that like? Oh, <laughs> it snowed and it snowed and rained most of the time when I, you know, because I took I took basic November, December, January, and we graduated the, <laughs> we graduated the first week of February of '69. In Washington State, oh Washington, man, that, Fort that Lewis. must have been—it must have been raining all the time. Oh, and we were the last unit to use the M14 in basic training. That's amazing. So basically, when you graduate, they were like, "Congratulations, you learned how to use an M14." Here's an M16. Yeah, we do. We did had the M16 AIT Advanced Individual Training. Oh wow, where was AIT at? Not Fort Lewis. No, Fort Knox, Kentucky. So you join you joined the 101st after AIT? No. After AIT I went to I went to NCO school. Oh, before you joined your first unit. Yeah. I went to non-commissioned officer non-commissioned officer academy in Fort Knox, Kentucky also. And that was um, 16 weeks of some pretty good training. And being a sergeant at 18 was um pretty harrowing and challenging having having um authority over men it was um very difficult too at 18 years old sure i bet they probably looked at you and go what do you know that i don't you know yeah (laughs) that must have been a leadership challenge then when i got to vietnam as a sergeant I had a good squad leader, John Spider Oakley from he's from Ponca City, Oklahoma. And he had already been in combat two yeah. year two year two two tours in Vietnam. Twenty-four months. And we were a combat unit. And um Spider taught me a lot. And he's he's uh today, I hate to say that he's um 
he has cancer and I, I pray for him all the time. I understand. To your unit, you had uh, some pretty, uh, you, it looks like you had some soldiers that served with a lot of distinction. Yeah. Mike Fitzmorris, he got, he got the Medal of Honor in Quezon, I think in January or February of 71, but I was already gone. Okay, so that was after Dewey Canyons 1 and 2 and Ripcord. Right. We were in Quezon, okay. our unit. We were, we were um, monitoring and fighting the uh, NVA as they coming down, coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from, from the north. And we, we had a few, few firefights with them, quite a few, I should say, coming down. And um, it was... Then in June 23rd of 1970, my little brother got killed by a, by a, in a car accident in North, back in the reservation. So I came back because I'm the sole surviving male in my immediate family. And I, I didn't go back to a combat unit because of that. Uh, so it was, a, it was almost like a Saving Private Ryan type of deal? Yeah. Pretty close. Gotcha. Only, I was, gotcha. only mine was the real one. <laughs> I understand. Now, uh, you were sent home, or you were you were you were sent back to Minnesota. Is that correct? Yeah, I got I, I was stationed in, in Minneapolis at Old Fort Snelling on a compassionate reassignment. You you shared some things with me privately. Do you, do you wish to share what happened back in Minnesota? Sure. Um, okay. During the Vietnam War, there were seventy-two nuclear missiles around Minneapolis, St. Paul, and and um, I, I was a sergeant of the guard in St. Bonifacius, about 30 miles west of Minneapolis, and going to work on a Monday morning, March 15th, at 6.45 a.m., I was in a car accident. And my two friends who were in my car, Frank and Dave, they were both killed, and the driver of the other car was killed. And I spent three weeks in a coma, and my last five months in the Army in the hospital. My gosh, did did they did they? Now you didn't get discharged while you were in a coma, correct? Did they they wait no, until you? Were, no, I was discharged okay. August thirty first of seventy one. You know, I've never interviewed somebody that's ever been in a coma. What was it like coming out of a coma? Well, you know, I was in a lot of pain. I had yeah. tubes all all over my body, yeah. and but when I woke when I woke up, my mother was there in the hospital room. My my sister, my couple of aunts, my aunt from Maryland, my aunt from Chicago. It was, um, it was very good to wake up, <laughs> to put it that way. Well, sure, sure. That's good. <laughs> At least you had your family there. That's good. Um, so after that, you transitioned out of the army, correct? Yeah. From, from, from that Waconia Ridgeview Hospital in, in uh, Waconia, Minnesota, I was transferred to William Beaumont Hospital in Fort Bliss, Texas. And then uh, the Army sent me to Fort Carson, Colorado for two weeks to be discharged. It took 18 years to get a disability. This is where today the VA should go back to that time period and treat us properly from that time period. And so that, you know, because... I'll be the first to admit, you, the Vietnam veterans had had a very, very short end of the stick. When it come when it came to how you were treated in service, you know, for when you guys came home, uh, to um, to everything afterwards, um, and I, I'm 
I, I do know that the, the, the VA does, you know, is doing a lot better now than it was back then. I think yeah. it's fair. To, I think that's fair to say. Um, now, I did read somewhere that uh, unlike most Vietnam veterans, uh, what was it like coming back to the reservation to the tribe? Was it, it was it a different experience as a Native American veteran? Yeah, because um, um, for what we've done, what we've done for this country, and and I look at it like this was our country first. Sure, that's what we call it, Indian country reservations. It's an Indian country. And we, I, were def, I was defending Indian country first, then, then about defending America. Through, through America, you were defending your own, your own land. Yes. And, but when I did come back, you know, I, I, um, I was under, it was under um, um, deplorable circumstances. My, my little brother's death, he was 14. And, and then when I got off the plane and, Oakland, I knelt down on the ground, kissed this country. I kissed the tarmac because I was glad to be home under dire circumstances, of course, but still, I was glad to be home. And that's when people were walking all, all over the place, not like today. And, um, and I felt something on, my, on the, my back of my neck. And here was saliva. And I looked up, somebody was looking back at me and, and spit on me. And so that, so, you know, because we didn't really know, I didn't really know what was going on in, in this country. We read the Star and the Stripes a lot in Vietnam. Yeah. And it said, told us a lot of stories about what happened at different universities. It's amazing. And that, that you have come into the reservation and, and you know, the OIF and OIF veterans have now is a completely 180 experience um, due to what I think what happened through the Vietnam veterans, you know, yeah. um, I, 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 I can't stand that that was a cross that you guys had to bear. So I, I have nothing but respect for those that had to come home to those circumstances. Well, thank you. It's a, you that's a greatly appreciated by me and not on behalf of every Vietnam veteran that I represent. Absolutely. So you, you, you transitioned out. Now, how did you start your transition? Did you start with the GI bill or did you go straight into film? No, (laughs) (laughs) because of my injuries, you know, I lost, I lost like 80 pounds in that, in that accident. Oh my gosh. And it was, you know, I was the true 110 pound weakling. Uh, yeah, but you say 110 pound a weekly, and I looked at your your photo from Vietnam. You you look like you could handle your business. I did. Just saying. <laughs> well, so you lost 80 pounds of that though after yeah. your accident. Yeah, yeah. I weighed I weighed about 190 in Vietnam. So how did you begin your fight back to? I mean, you are now a double PhD. You were in 14 films. Um. How did you begin your fight back? Well, my fight back was uh, going back to my my grand my grandmother's ranch. My grandfather died in '63, and yeah. my grandma and I was raised in high school on the ranch, and so I went back out there and and uh, I rehab myself. Uh, how how so, like in what ways? Well, I, my grandma. We had horses on the ranch. We had cattle, and the horses were my love. 
Mm. And I would, I couldn't, I couldn't ride a horse right away because I was so weak, but I'd go out and, 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 um, let the horse know that I loved him. And we had like 80 horses on the ranch. And, um, I just grab a couple in the, in the pen and who weren't broke. And I would walk up to them and pet them and look at them. And they'd look back at me and, and I'd just walk up to them and start petting them. And then once they knew that I, that I cared, when I turned around to walk away, they'd follow me. <laughs> and it was, you know, with a unbroke horse that had never experienced this type of behavior from a human. It was, it was, uh, it was a good feeling on my, on my, on, on my behalf and a good feeling for the horse. Yeah. You and develop so, a rapport and trust and all that. Yeah, exactly. Trust is the factor. And, uh, because, um, with the Vietnam combat veteran, trust is a major factor. So these horses helped rehab. You helped rehab through these horses. Yeah, I was there. For, I, was, I was out the ranch for. My mother worked in town, and uh, the family took good care of me. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> because they knew what I went through, my head injury. You know, I had headaches every day, and uh, when I go to town, I would buy a buy a few bottles of whiskey, and because I'd self medicate myself for the headaches, and. Uh, my grandma always said to me, Bob, you look different every morning. Why is that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in a different state every night. Because <laughs> yeah. I'd be outside in the barn drinking my whiskey for my headaches. And even in the morning, I'd go out there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't even eat breakfast. I'd just go out in the barn because that's where I kept the whiskey. So grandma wouldn't find it. <laughs> oh, wow. So, um. How did you pull out of that and start, you start your, your, you know, how did you start your transition? Uh, again, I saw that you started school through, was it rodeo scholarships or through the GI bill or a mixture well, uh, of both? Rodeo, rodeo scholarships would get me into the college. Yeah. I didn't know that there were rodeo scholarships. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh yeah. That's a big thing. My, uh, my cousin, Joe Chase was a three time national collegiate saddlebrone champion. Back in the back in the fifties, I had 50s. no idea. I had no idea that that was a college sport. Yeah, and it's called the NIRA, National Intercollegiate Rodeo Association. Oh wow! And I would say there's about, I would say at least four hundred universities, probably you know, members of that NIRA. So you got to a point where you were able to ride the horse again. You were able to start doing rodeos, and you you got these scholarships to go to school. Yeah, I'd say about the late seventies when I started. And because uh, I still couldn't work, I had trouble with my body physically. And so I'd go to school for the money. You know, I got, I'd get like, I don't know, maybe $300 a month from the VA for, for the, on the GI Bill. Yeah, I guess, I guess riding a, a horse for eight seconds is a little different than working eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's about it. And, uh, I won a few titles in my life, and uh, and and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know at the time that I was a that I had these military disabilities. Yeah, but I loved the horse, and and um, I loved competing, and that's what that's what kept my survival going. Because I just I loved I loved riding bucking horses. So you you graduated school, um, 
how did you get your start in film? Because you, uh, I've seen your IMDb, I've seen your uh, your your filmography. You got you've been in fourteen films, uh, eight or nine TV series, and uh, including Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. It looks like you had a pretty regular guest appearance on there for uh, over twenty episodes. Yeah, a number of documentaries. How did all that start? That didn't start till the eighty eighty nine ninety. Okay, when um. I was, I was I was in living in White River, South Dakota, with my uncle Willie Burnett, and Uncle Willie had a pretty good sized ranch, and his health was declining. Before so, then, you you were just you were ranching uh, from ranch to ranch, or you ranching at your uncle's between family and, ranches. Yeah, gotcha. Going between school and and between before film. Okay, and uh, they were filming the movie Thunderheart with Val Kilmer and Sam Shepard and. and um, we just walked, walked, my cousin, Billy Burnett, we just went over, drove over there to see in Kadoka, South Dakota, see what was going on. And yeah. we're, walk, we're walking around the set. I mean, uh, the the camp, basically, their headquarters. Just walking through it. Just walking around, <laughs> taking, taking, taking some drinks and food food off the catering table and <laughs> <laughs> just having a good old time. We weren't, we weren't, we weren't even part of the show yet. It reminds me of a story in, in a previous episode that we had with, uh, he's a, his name is Rick Robinson. He's a, uh, Emmy award winning cinematographer. And the way he got into Hollywood is he had a 57 Corvette and he just basically went on to Warner brother studios and just kind of walked on and you knew some of the guards and paid some of the guards to just walk on the set. It's a different time that you guys were in. I, I could, I could see it right now. It seems like uh, the movie sets were a little bit looser back then than they are now. Yeah. It's amazing. So you're just, so you're just walking around the set. You're yeah. walking around the set, grabbing food from catering. And, what, and some, 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 um, production assistant, a PA walks up to me. Excuse me, sir. Um, the director wants to talk to you. And after we're done, <laughs> I think we're going to get kicked out of here right now. And the director wants to see it. Michael Apted. He directed some big movies. Yeah. And he was direct, he directed Thunderheart. The production assistant, I followed him and met Michael Apted. And um, would you like to wear a wig and a, and a Levi jacket? I said, what? <laughs> I, mean, I just came, for, getting, some, I just came not, for some food, man. Yeah, I'm not getting kicked out of here. <laughs> and, um, I said, for what? Well, Graham Greene, he, you know, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sporting Actor in, um, in uh, Dances with Wolves. Yeah. And he was, he was the, one of the main characters. Yeah. And so we, we, need, uh, we need someone to ride in this brown shimmy. So... Sure. <laughs> this, is how you got, this, is how, this is how you started your acting career. Director walks up to you and says, hey, you want to drive around in a brown Chevy? Yeah. You <laughs> know, in, in all those car chase scenes in the movie Thunderheart, I'm in the Chevy. Me and Billy, Billy Burton, who's uh, doubling for uh, Val Kilmer, that's us in the brown Chevy. And we just, a couple of times, we just went, we just went head, almost went head over heels in a 20, 20 foot ditch couple times <laughs> and uh, we had no seat belts in the car so <laughs> oh we smoke another 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 accident that, that looked like about to happen but it never did happen Billy was a heck of a driver and uh, when the movie was over we were 
Billy and I worked on this on the show for like, I don't know, 65 days or something like that. And and then uh, when the movie was over, I'm eligible for union membership in the, into the Screen Actors Guild. That's an amazing that. way. To, that's an amazing way to start a career. I'm just saying. <laughs> doing stunt, doing stunt work, and I had no idea it was you know we're doing stunt work. <laughs> just riding in a car. <laughs> <laughs> Did they invite you to the premiere? Did you get to go to the premiere? What, no, the how, premiere. The premiere was in L.A. and you know we're not yeah. going to know. No, we. And they didn't. They didn't have any premieres in South Dakota at the time either. Ah, oh, they should have. They should have since they filmed it out there, man. They <clears throat> totally should have. Yeah. So, so you got your SAG card because of it, though. You got your yeah, SAG card. I got my SAG card in 1992. I went to I went to my mom, Uncle Willie. I said, "What do you think I go to? You know, this is a. I got my union card, and what if I moved to L.A. and try and tried see what I can do in the movie industry? Yeah. And well, Bob, Uncle Willie said, "If you don't do it, you never will." So I packed up my pickup and. Drove to LA with just yeah. just just drove just drove your pickup no plan just we're going to do it. Yes, that's right. Because oh, I, yeah. I had an income, even though my head injury at the time was just called a concussion. Yeah, yeah. No, TBI and and all that kind of came later with uh with the NFL and and with Iraq and they they kind of finally figured out what TBI TBI and and PTSD were. You know. Yeah. Um, in the '90s, you had a re- you had a regular guest appearance on Doctor Quinn Messman for almost 20 episodes. Yeah. What was the what was the role? I just played a played an Indian in the because there was only like I would say eight or ten of us that that were reg- kind of not regular, but asked to come back and we need you for a scene and go back and ride a horse or on the scene or or um, protect the camp or something like that. Uh, so you you were basically played a, a an extra for a number of different roles within Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's really cool because that was a big show back then. So Indeed. then you 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 met some friends in the industry, uh, obviously through through all this. Yeah, uh, um, I mean I, I saw you you were in a Celebrity Wife Swap with Gary Busey, and I'm with and I'm with Busey, and that was more more of the recent stuff. But you did a movie with Gary uh, called Rough Riders, uh, and you actually had some speaking roles on that one. Yeah, I was, I, that was um, a big role for me. That was my last movie I did. And, and it, was uh, a, it was a big miniseries on TBS, right? TBS or TNN? Yeah, four-hour yeah, four okay. four hour miniseries. And that was over about Teddy Roosevelt's service uh, as a rough rider in Cuba, correct? Yep. And how yep. We, did, uh, we did the charge at San Juan Hill and Kettle Hill and took it over. And there was, you know, Tom Berenger played Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, for the for the audience for the audience here, there was there's Tom Berenger, Sam Elliott, Gary Busey, Brad Johnson was big back then, uh, Captain Dale Die of Saving Private Ryan fame, George yeah. George Hamilton uh, back at, back then in the nineties, Arlie Ermy, and of course, and, and then there was a uh, Law and Order's Chris Chris Noth who was big Chris in Law and Order back then. Yeah, yeah, and Frank Frankie Quinn, Francesco Quinn, the eldest son of Anthony Quinn. Okay. Yep. Yep. And and Frank and I became good friends. Yeah. And I was living in northern L.A. County in a little, to- little, little town called Acton, A-C-T-O-N, at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the, I, had, I, had, I owned like six or seven horses on my six-acre little ranch. So you were and, pretty active working to, to be able to afford uh, a living like that. With, yeah. So you, you had a speaking role in Rough Riders. How did the role of Indian Bob 
come to you? Like, how did it happen? <laughs> well, that was a news to me too at the time. John Milius, who I had, who I had visited, and he wrote a couple of he wrote he wrote Geronimo, which I was also in with Robert Duval and Gene Hackman, and that was a big and movie Matt Matt Damon. Yeah, and um, and um, walking by, I was walking by um, John Milius's office at Warner Brothers one time. And I said, wait now, he wrote Geronimo. I'm going to say hi. And I met Leonard Brady, his uh, assistant. And mm. they were really glad to see me because I was a Lakota. And and John is a big supporter of, of Indian issues. And so, and so I, and uh, John's not here right now. I'll be back in a couple hours. Just hang around. So I did. I hung around and I office that day. And John came in and and John and I visited for four or five hours in his office. Wow. And and um, then about a year later, I get a phone call from this casting agent. And uh, she said, Mr. Primo, can you come down to my office and sign a contract? What do you mean, sign a contract? No, uh, we have a role for you in the movie Rough Riders, and we'd like you to sign a contract. I was in my car in three minutes <laughs> driving to L.A., and I and I signed my contract and and uh, I was I was treated like a king because yeah. John Milius wrote the role of Indian Bob specifically for me and John Milius is uh, like the premier screenwriter in L.A. even today. Yeah, <clears throat> like he wrote God. He you know his his uh, resume is endless. That's awesome. So so he wrote that specifically for you. Mm-hmm. Whole movie was filmed in Texas, all over Texas. And um, all of a sudden, I got a limousine pulling up to my front yard to pick me up to take me to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> First time that's ever happened, I'm sure. Oh, God, I should say so. And I said, what? What? what is that? I, I felt really privileged. And um, then my son was born in November 16th in the 96. And uh, what, 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 could I, what could I give John? for writing this role for me in this movie. And um, I named my son Talon Milius Primo. My son's middle name is after John Milius, Milius Primo. That's a, that's a pretty and, big, that's a pretty big honor. And when I told him, when I, I showed John the um, birth certificate, tears literally came to his eyes. And I, I, I felt really proud that I did the right thing, I think. Because what do you, what do you give to a guy who who has everything you know materially? Yeah. And so, but when I I just give John a hug and John, I can't thank you enough, and that was it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So you weren't the uh, only native on that movie. You had a uh, no. There was uh, one more. David Midthunder. Yeah. No. No. There was two more. Midthunder and uh and another. I can't think, but and, gotcha. um, so I mean, you were one of very few. What I was getting at is, you're one of very few Native Americans in Hollywood at the time. Uh, was there camaraderie camaraderie with either other veterans or other Native Americans in L.A. at this time? Uh, not really. Mm. The camaraderie was was uh, jealousy. Competitiveness. There's more yeah, competitive. Yeah, competitiveness, but uh, there was also a, ta- a, a bit of jealousy in it. Also, mm. that's unfortunate. This today, um, 
if you go back to I think episode 140 in the archives and and look through Jennifer Marshall, she's a Navy veteran that's out there in LA today. And they have a group now called Veterans and Media and Entertainment. And I think they meet at least once a month uh, as a support group to uh, for veterans in the film industry trying to make it trying to make it out there. Wonderful. But I just wanted to share that with you that nowadays there, there are veterans, you know, that are supporting each other out there in LA. On, on obviously, I mean, from what your testimony is, unlike to what it was back then. Uh huh. Yeah, it was a it was a completely different ball game back in, back when I was living in LA. She does still say that it is pretty isolated and and an isolating place, LA. But she does say that there are veterans that are helping each other out there. Uh huh. So. After after Rough Riders, um, you had a you developed some friendships out there, obviously with John Milius and Gary Busey, uh, and you ended up on a couple of reality shows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> towards the end of your career, uh, Celebrity Wife Swap, and I'm with Busey. That was late late 2012s. Um, how did that relationship develop? How did you? Uh, how did that? How did all that come to be? Uh, Gary had his own TV show called Life with Busey. Yeah, yeah. And I was on one of the segments. And uh, we spent we spent like a week in Sedona, Arizona, filming that. And um, it was and Gary. Gary's, in fact, I just talked to Gary a couple of days ago. We talk we talk very fairly often. Him and I. I look at your career, Robert, even before your film career, and it's almost like you were a, like a Lakota Renaissance man. Uh, you know, including your films, you were also had your own radio show, um, and you were a basketball coach, correct? Yes. Got you. What were the what were the name of the radio shows? My uh, I had two of them. I would say at the time it was the first veteran show in the nation called Sit Rep Situation Report. Sure. And that was in um, 2009 to 2012, I think. Okay. So you had Sit Rep, and what was the other one? The Warrior. It and was that, a total. That was a American Indian show on, about Amer- national American Indian issues. And I, and I, on both shows, I interviewed generals, congressmen, leaders in the Indian country, yeah. um, tribal chair, tribal chair people, um, tribal leaders, and that that that, that show went nation, nation nationwide. You you also, including your radio shows, you were a spokesperson for uh, a lot of veteran issues and, and Native American veteran issues. Uh, you you did some speaking uh, to other tribes. I saw a YouTube video with you with a seminal, like a seminal Veterans Day. You, right. you talk about, and you've talked to me about the four Lakota virtues. Why are they important to you? What are they? Oh, yes. We call them the four cardinal virtues of the Lakota warrior. And we are taught these virtues from, from very young, from a very young age, as soon as the youth could start to understand. And that's probably three or four years old. Bravery, generosity, fortitude, mm-hmm. and the most important is wisdom. My uncle David Harrison, Korean War veteran, he was in artillery and they were overrun and he was taken as a captive by the, wow. by the North Koreans. And But he was taught these four virtues in a I would say 49 or or 50 before the Korean War. And when he found out he's going to Korea, two elders 
Spotted Horse and Red Fox. My grandfather took took my uncle down to, to see them on the banks of the Grand River in, in uh, South Dakota on the reservation. Mm-hmm. And the banks of the, the banks of the Grand River was right near Sitting Bull's cabin. His cabin and is still there? No, no, it was taken to the, it was take his cabin was taken to the Chicago Rules Fair. Got you. I forget the year. In but at this 30, point, it was, it was on the reservation still. Yes. Okay. And, um, and, uh, Spotted Horse and Red Fox went through these four virtues with Uncle David. And, uh, and, um, when he was a captive in the North Korean prison camp, him and, him and a Japanese American, they escaped in the middle of winter. And uh, they made it back to the American lines. They escaped North Korea. Yeah, from a North Korean North Korean prison camp. Oh my gosh! And when I got orders for Vietnam, I was at my grandma's ranch, and you know, I'm on leave, thirty day leave before I went to Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, and uh, within the last week of my going to Vietnam, I'm at grandma's, and Uncle David shows up. He says, Bob, let's go for a walk. So we went for a walk on the ranch, you know, around the pasture and stuff. And he said, Bob, I'm, I'm gonna tell you a little story about about me when I went to Viet- when I went to Korea. So he told me about the four cardinal virtues. And he said, if it wouldn't have been for the four cardinal virtues, he never would have he never would have made it, and he never would have survived afterwards. Yeah. He said, if it wasn't for these four virtues, I'd have committed suicide. And so we talked about him, and because we were both in combat units. Yeah. At this point, he was like, "Hey, let's let me share this with you." Yeah. And so the, the four virtues were very important to me when I went over there, being in a combat unit, and I tried to I tried to live by the virtues in Vietnam. So he attributes these virtues to not committing suicide, like after after combat. Yeah. He was a POW Frank for about six or seven months. Oh, wow. So in your talks that you gave back probably like around 2011, 2012, it seemed like to me you were trying to reintroduce or talk about these virtues a lot because you think it could help other veterans. Yeah, on the radio. Um, getting getting these across, even with the definitions, Yeah, tribal definitions, not not dictionary definitions. Yeah, it seems like uh, from what you sent me, uh, the the definition of generosity is a very much different, a very different definition than what I would read in a, like you said, a dictionary. Yeah, because yeah, these it, are these are it, tribal it, definitions. It said something about of if you have two, you always give away one. Yeah, Tri- tribal physical property didn't didn't really mean a lot, but if you gave something away to help somebody, that that was the ultimate. Hmm. you are considered a better person to help somebody else. And bravery, it seems like that, you know, uh, bravery is almost a, tra- a traditional style of bravery, except for uh, more up close than, than far away. Um, yeah. These aren't written down anywhere, correct? Except for what you've written me or. You, you, you could probably find them on the internet. Yeah. On um, about traditional values of the Lakota. Yeah. Or, or something like that to do a search to okay. do a search engine. Okay. But to really get the the proper meaning of it, it's got to come from an elder. 
understood. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, you were tough. you were you were taught these not only by your uncle, but you also had a uh, like you said in the '90s, you got to really get in touch with your your culture, your family. Uh, you were taught by some people that had some pretty strong lineage, correct? Yes, I, um, one of the most important people in my life when it comes to something like the virtues was Isaac Dog Eagle, who was the eldest great eldest great grandson of Sitting Bull. Oh wow! And my grand my great great grandfather Louis Primo was Sitting Bull's interpreter. Yeah, and so that's what brought Isaac and I close. And Isaac Gary Gary came back to the reservation one time. Yeah. Twice, I think. Gary Busey. And I, Isaac adopted us as brothers. Oh, wow. Gary and I. <laughs> and it, and uh, adopted us as his eldest sons. Yeah. And Isaac passed away a few years ago. But he, him and, him and um, I said, Joe Walker, who was the eldest great, eldest great grandson of Rain in the Face. I'm, I'm familiar with sitting bull i'm familiar with crazy horse rain in the face sounds familiar to me but i don't remember what his role was he, he rain in the face was one of the principal commanders of the of the sioux and the cheyenne at, at the little bighorn i understand okay the indoctrination how does that start how long does it last what what is it like to be in the presence of elders like that is it is it unique is it yeah it's it's uh, it's really unique it's okay. really unique because now all these elders have passed on. Yeah. And I'm one of the few people, I probably, I, I would say the only one living that has studied under these elders from different, from different Sioux tribes. And Oliver Red Cloud is the, is the grandson of the Red Cloud. So how did you come to be in the presence of these men? Uh, how did... I mean, we, we, um, we just sit and listen. And um, like with Joel Walker, him and I would sit in his house. We'd have coffee. And we start just start talking. And when you talk to an elder, you listen. Yeah. And uh, Isaac, Dog Eagle, would tell me a story about my grandfather and Buffalo Bill. And before this, you didn't know you were related to them? or Because you told no. me earlier on. you were... I had no idea. Oh wow! So they're the well, one, these these elders are the ones that trace the family histories almost. Isaac did. Wow! You can't really do research on the internet when you come down to something like this. Yeah, no. You gotta you gotta talk I to tried. other elders. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> <laughs> you got because our our our, uh, our history has been verbal a verbal history. Yeah, yeah. And so I talk so in the in the. In the ninety, even even in even as late as two thousand twelve, I started talking to elders back home. Yeah. And then it was after after that, within like a four year period, all these elders have died. But I had, but I had, I had, I have had the opportunity to talk to these elders and learn from these elders. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, I'm an elder. <laughs> <laughs> and. And um, getting getting this type of of um, learning opportunities from these different elders, I'm 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 very privileged and honored to have learned from these these elders. What do you want to do with this information 
now that I want I want to help I want to help other veterans because Joe Walker was a Korean War veteran. Yeah. And he's the only and he's the only veteran, military veteran of all the elders. Because the other elders were holy men. But with these four cardinal virtues, I want to do a video that will help these veterans because because uh, our youth we're, we're taught these from 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 a very young age, all through life. Then when we went through our our um, our time period to be a to be a to be a man, yeah. These these virtues are stuck in their head, and they know how to be a, a true warrior. And um, that's why these this is one this is one because of these virtues. These are the reasons why the Lakota, Oglala, um, who have never had PTSD issues, never had P- never never had PTSD issues. No, because of these because of these virtues, and I know for a fact these virtues could help. Uh, Lieutenant Kalsu was in the hundred first at the same time you were, correct? Lieutenant who? Kalsu. I met him. I met him twice over there. Really? Did I, met you? Him, I met him at the PX one time, and he's a big guy. And I was a spider, and we're out at the main PX, the headquarters in, at Camp Eagle, yeah. which was the headquarters for the 101st. And excuse, excuse me, I said, I'm Bob Primo. I said, from, from Stand Rock in North Dakota. And I, and I turned, he turned around, I saw that gold bar on his, on his collar. <laughs> he's a second lieutenant. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, sir. <laughs> well, now, was you know, he pretty? Was he pretty well known as an NFL player at the time? Like, oh, you know, he was. He was the rookie of the year for the for the Buffalo Bills. Oh wow! Okay, see, I have no, I had no idea. Wow! And the guy that took his place as a lineman, offensive lineman, yeah, is in the Hall of Fame now. Uh, so, Lieutenant Castle, he did pass in Vietnam, correct? Yes, he was killed in a, on a firebase ripcord. You have. Made it your mission almost to to honor him. Yeah, uh, by um, by I wrote a letter and I started writing letters in 2016 or yeah 2016 to the NFL to the NFL Hall of Fame that there are five veterans um, who basically didn't have to didn't have to go to war and uh, these gentlemen should should deserve some type of recognition by the NFL Hall of Fame. Yeah, I read your 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 paper that you sent to me or your letter that you sent to the Hall of Fame on behalf of them. Um you had a very lo- logical example with the NHL. Mm-hmm. Like the NHL has has done something similar than what than for what you're advocating. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I you, used um I used as an example, I used um Hobie Baker as an example. And who's Hobie? The, the National it, Hockey League. Now that was like before my time, but before your time, correct? Like Hobie Baker was like World yeah, War Two. We're talking. We're talking World War One. Oh my gosh! I mean, wasn't a Hall of Famer by merit, but they made they made him a Hall of Famer by like in a special section for service members, and that's kind of what you're advocating with the NFL. Yeah, got you. Well, there, there's um, there's the five of the five, you know Pat Tillman is one of them. Yep. Um, I can't remember the names of the uh, three other gentlemen. Got but you. But you one, did your research and you, you included them in your letter. Yeah. But the one gentleman in World War II on Iwo Jima, he got the Medal of Honor. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know, his his dying words to to the to his doctor, his dying words, the New York Jets, no, the New York Giants, lost a lost a lost a good end today. Because he was wow. a, he played offensive end wow. and a heck of a receiver. Those were your dying words to to the doctor. Wow. Oh, Robert, I'd like to I'd like to leave a parting shot for. Um, you know, I, I think you have a strong message with the with the Lakota virtues. Yes. I think uh, you have a lot to say for 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 veterans. Um, Robert, is there is there anything else that you would like to say or t- to our listeners that you think would be important to share? Time will heal. Time time will heal. But if you think about the virtues, they will help. Bravery, generosity, fortitude, and the most important of all, wisdom. We have a we have a saying among the Lakota. It's like never give up. If they need a home, they can get a home loan. If they need education, they can get education. If they were hurt in service, we pay compensation. If you weren't hurt in service, but you fell on hard times, we give you pension. There's just an array of benefits out there for veterans. And we really want to just make sure that all the veterans know what's out there. Choose VA today. For more information, visit va.gov or call 1-855-948-2311. I want to thank Robert for his patience and getting his story out. I hope that in airing it now, his story receives the maximum amount of exposure out there in podcast land. Again, November is Native American Heritage Month, and this week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Army veteran, and we heard about him earlier, Herbert Buffalo Boy. This comes from the prairiepublic.org, and it says, Herbert served as a staff sergeant with the 82nd Airborne Division and was one of a limited number of airborne members involved in four combat jumps, one of only a handful of Native Americans who earned the four-star Airborne Veteran Honor. Another four-star Airborne Veteran was Brigadier General James Gavin, the only general in history to make four combat jumps. General Gavin commanded the 82nd Airborne, and Buffalo Boy and Gavin knew each other personally. Herbert Buffalo Boy made combat jumps at Sicily and Salerno in Italy, Normandy in France, and Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands. Herbert was well thought of in his unit and was known for his bravery and fighting ability, having continued to fight even after being wounded several times. He is one of the most decorated Native Americans from North Dakota. After also serving in Korea, Herbert came home to North Dakota, farmed, ranched, married, and had five children. One of his sons, Robert, continued his dad's legacy, serving two tours in Vietnam and coming home as a decorated veteran. Over the years, Herbert participated in many ceremonies and activities sponsored by the American Legion, including a turn as the commander of the Albert Grass Post in Fort Yates. Sadly, Herbert Buffalo Boy passed away in 1984. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. 
just email us. Just email us at podcast at va.gov. All you got to do, send an email. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, please subscribe. We are on any podcatching app. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, pretty much any podcatching app known to tablet, computer, phone, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. Back in the early 80s, um, I wrote a letter to um, a gentleman in, in Bismarck, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And he was the founder of um, some cleaning products, which he has offices in New York City and Bismarck. And I can't think of his name right offhand. And he flew me to about four or five veteran, veteran conferences around the country. Oh wow! When they had the um, the uh, moving the moving wall, yeah. And I went to San Francisco. I went to Dallas. I went to Kansas City. I went uh, I went to um, DC a couple times. Yeah. And he flew he flew me to these places, and and I don't know if you remember this, but during the eighties, they had different states would keep would would um, form colored. Uh, honor guards at the at the at the wall. Yeah, and uh, and now uh, we went when we went there. He flew us to DC, but we stayed in DC for like a week, eight or nine days. And he paid paid for our motel rooms, give us cash for food, and 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 um, Virginia, who we really became close friends with. Wes Caton was the head of the of the Virginia guard at the wall. And he had like 18 guys with him because they were saying 24 hour guards. Yeah. And there, were, and there was only four of us, that, <laughs> three of us that came from North Dakota, three of us. Wow. Me, Glenn Yellow, Calvin Valandra and Calvin's brother, Butch was working for the Indian health service. He was a green Beret in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And the four of us, and Virginia helped us guard 24 hours for, for a week. And so I, you know, I owe a big thanks to Virginia, I mean, the yeah, state of Virginia at that time, especially to West Caton, because he stayed there an extra week too to so make, make sure. And guess who come to visit us one night? Oh, yeah, who's that? Uh, oh, just so I'm going to say his name, I forget it. <laughs> he was probably the greatest newscaster of, of that time period, Walter what? Cronkite. Oh, Cronkite. Yeah. He came to visit us. Did he?
Yeah. Very cool. Was he doing he a story said, on you guys or just wanted to one, be one, one, one of the guys had a motorhome and and uh, had the, the motorhome parked right right by the wall. And we see he sat in there with us for about three or four hours. Walter Cronkite did. Wow. Just shooting the breeze? Just, yeah. As he, he, he had, I mean, that's Mr. Question himself right there. Yeah. <laughs> and he asked us so many questions about the war and everything about Vietnam. I, I, I wow. mean, was it, was it, was it, was it a camera thing or was he just shooting the breeze? No, he, he, no, he, it, he just, it was just, what? just him. Just curious. Cause we're sending guard to the wall. And he went, what, what are you guys doing this for? Oh, wow. He said, we're, you know, West Caton, he said, regarding our brothers. Yeah. And Walter Cronkite basically said, you know what he said? Hmm. Enough said. <laughs>